0: Um, The barrio assemblies and these like you know grassroots neighborhood organizations. A lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, You're always
1: uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, the podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Deloff, and I'm your big tent revival MC for this. Evening or afternoon or whenever you're listening to this podcast.
0: And I'm Matt Bernico, the co-host and also the usher. I'm going to pass this plate around and I'm hoping <laughs> you put a good, crisp $1 bill in
1: there. It's got to be crisp. We don't want any folded $1 bills. Only the best <laughs> for this collection plate. Um, this week on the show, we're talking about not only the renewal of the socialist ideal, a fantastic article written by John Bellamy Foster, who you will learn more about later, but the revival of... Uh, of the socialist ideal. That's the Magnificast flavor that you're going to get on this one. Uh, We're bringing all our big tent, Christian revival energy. We're going to get people pumped up about socialism. We're going to talk about what it actually means. We're going to bring you back to the heart of socialism, if you will. Uh, But to start doing that, I really feel like this is just a great opportunity to plumb also the depths of, Matt, your uh, traumatic evangelical experience uh, vis-a-vis revivals. (laughs)
0: Oh boy, would I sure like to exploit all of my, <laughs> all of my extremely uh, <laughs> troubling evangelical past for my podcast. You, That's exactly what I want to If you can't
1: monetize do. it, it's like, what else can you do with it?
0: That's right. So if you're not familiar with Christianity and evangelicalism and church in general, you might not know what a revival is. But I guess I'm here to tell you about it. <laughs> okay. So sometimes, uh, oh boy, Christianity. It gets way too uh, frilly. It gets way too fancy. It gets to be about, you know, the pew you're sitting in and the types of clothes you wear to church and whether or not you're in you're you're the leader of your promise keepers group or <laughs> whatever, <laughs> right? All these other things get in the way. But revivals. Oh, boy, they're so important. That's when you get back to what church is all really about, Um that's when you that's when you um, make a new commitment to the Lord and, uh, you know, you just put all that other stuff away and you just do just the just the church stuff that you're really there for. Mm-hmm. Um, Dean, I don't know if in in your uh, evangelical tenure, if you've ever been to a revival service, but I've been to way too many of them. I've been to some at my uh, my home church and I've been to some at uh, <laughs> at church camp. And I got to tell you, they're all the same and they all suck this is what happens this is a revival service um it's someone telling you about how sort of indulgent and um and and just like off the wall church has gotten it's just gotten to be so much oh it's so intense it's Mm -hmm. so many things are going on oh there's a big band oh it's terrible and uh it's trying to call you back to that one thing that christianity is really about and that is, I guess, Jesus. But <laughs> people people are still uh, the, the experts are still out on that one. Um, anyways, man, I've been to so many and this is they go. There's really emotional, emotional events, too, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I could probably say that. Right. There's always a guy up there. He's going to be yelling at you. He's going to make you feel bad about your life and try to get you to come down to the altar in front and uh, recommit your life to Jesus Christ. All of these things um, are are the revival movement in Christianity, and they're not great. I got to tell you, um, <laughs> but, you know, it's a it's a mechanism that tries to get you to recommit to what the whole thing is about. And uh, that, I guess, isn't so bad. You know, it's a good idea to remind yourself why you're doing something in the first place. So, uh, you know, there's a, a big revival in Christianity and it's. <laughs> questionable about how good that is, but maybe uh, maybe we might need a revival or a renewal of the socialist idea as well.
1: Yeah, that's great. So we're here to uh, ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes at the end of this episode and commit your life to the socialist ideal. Maybe you've been a socialist your whole life. Maybe you were a, a red diaper baby born and raised. Um, but, you know, just like with Christianity, you've really got to make make that faith your own.
0: That's right. You're out there on Twitter. You've got, you know, 30 <laughs> different countries, flags in your uh, in your username. <laughs> you're you're uh, an anarcho Maoist syndicalist and you have situationist tendencies. But what we're telling you, <laughs> is it is time to get back to what the heart of this whole thing is about. And That's that is, right. well, season the means in a in season, the state and transitioning towards socialism.
1: Yeah, that's right. Uh, Well, to get some help on this, we've turned to um, uh, famous uh, socialist revivalist John Bellamy Foster. Surely uh, a title that he does not want, but nevertheless that we have foisted upon him. He doesn't listen to this podcast. Don't worry, it's fine. Um, and, uh, yeah, he, he wrote this great article called The Renewal of the Socialist Ideal, and it just felt like, uh, in some sense, it's kind of a revival moment, I guess, but also, uh, a good, uh, just point of clarification in the middle of a lot of confusion around socialism. So, we're going to talk about it a bit. The article is in the Monthly Review, which, if you've never heard of, is, I always say, the one socialist publication in the U.S. that you should subscribe to. If you can only afford one... Like me, <laughs> then that should be the one that you get in your mail. Uh, the rest of them read it on the internet, whatever. Um, unless I write in them, in which case you should buy them. Um, <laughs> the The monthly review is a really interesting kind of historical magazine. They they publish all kinds of uh, fascinating kind of independent socialist and communist analyses. And John Bellamy Foster is like one of the most uh, Important editorial voices there.
0: All that being said, though, you can find the article itself on the monthly review and we're going to link it in the show notes. So if you want to read the article too, you can definitely do it without having subscribed to
1: the magazine at all. That's right. And you should, you should read it online and you should subscribe to it in print. Um, In any case, the article is really good. Um, I think it's also a really nice way to call our attention to some trends on the left that I don't know. It's hard to talk about. Uh, and trends on the left that are also particularly, I don't want to say tempting for Christians because that's not exactly the right word, but uh, they, they have a certain pull, I'll say, on Christianity um, for reasons that we can talk about in a moment. The article, probably the the key point of it is to intervene in a conversation about socialism and what it means in the 21st century. You know, lots of people are talking about how socialism is no longer a dirty word. You know, since at least 2016, it's become a kind of almost a meme in many respects. And that's gotten a lot of people, um, which is great, uh, thinking about socialism for the first time. But the danger of that, of course, is then uh, it's hard to sort of sort out what we're really talking about. And socialism becomes a, a cipher for all kinds of other things. And so, uh, again, John Bellamy Foster is just going to call us back to the heart of worship here. Um, so let me start out with one quote that I think will give us a chance to dig into this a little further. And then we'll we'll talk about socialism and we'll we'll get some help from JBF uh, as a way to um, get some themes on the table. So. He writes here a major obstacle in formulating strategic goals of socialism in the world today has to do with the 20th 20th century socialism's abandonment of its own ideals as originally articulated in Karl Marx's vision of communism. To understand this problem, it's necessary to go beyond recent left attempts to address the meaning of communism on a philosophical basis a question that has led, in the last decade, to abstract treatments of the communist idea, the communist hypothesis, and the communist horizon by Alain Bajou and others. Rather, a more concrete, historically-based starting point is necessary, focusing directly on the two-phase theory of socialist-communist development that emerged out of Marx's critique of the Gotha program, which we've talked about on the show in the past, NVI Lenin's The State and Revolution. So those are the uh, textual authorities JBF is going to appeal to to get us out of this big philosophical quagmire about communism. So, Matt, I'm going to turn it over to you. Um, Why (laughs) do you think uh, it matters to sort of talk about this weird um, philosophical conversation around communism and what does it have to do with Christianity?
0: Yeah, I think it's a really helpful... um intervention, especially for people in North America. Um, I mean, I, I, Dean, I know that you and I are alike in this, but, you know, both of us are not like, <laughs> you know, we're not formed in the the struggle, <laughs> in the class struggle necessarily, right? <laughs> uh, we're, we're not, uh, we're not socialists, we're not communists, we're not people on the left because of like um, some kind of engagement with an intense class warfare. I think both of us kind of got here through philosophy or, you know, and in, in Christianity to a large extent. So I think this is a, help, a helpful introduction um, or a helpful intervention because it kind of uh, reminds us that, uh, yeah, the Elaine Badus of the world and the Z-Sex of the world are like, I don't know, they're fine, but <laughs> they're not like the uh, they are not the point of socialism.
1: Right. Yeah, I think, too, um, you know, Christianity, the reason I used that word temptation earlier is that I think Christians, we have a a, a great um, capacity to convince ourselves that we're extremely radical through rhetoric alone. <laughs> right. Uh, you can say a lot of radical things and sound very radical about the kingdom of God and breaking in the world or, or whatever it might be. And no, I, I wouldn't disparage that, you know, like uh, the rhetoric is important, it's powerful, etc., but I think that tendency also leads us to um, find, like, cognates or fellow travelers in philosophy. And this is certainly the case in my in my own uh, history, right? Like, as a young Christian evangelical at the time, um, thinking about what it means to be a Christian in the world, you stumble upon someone like Slavoj Zizek, and he's also talking about Christianity and communism. And the next thing you know, uh, you have some wild opinions about... <laughs> communism and capitalism uh you're out there reading is,
0: hegel being yeah. led astray right into the exactly. of the devil
1: that's right that's right the satanic panic uh it's not they had it wrong it's not D D. it's uh it's hegel for sure um <laughs> yeah uh what i mean though is you know you can you can read your way into communism and socialism and i think that's fine like i don't know we shouldn't Um, complain about how people get in the door. Again, a great revivalist uh, (laughs) trope. Uh, Whatever gets you into this tent is totally fine. Um, But once you're here, we want to we want to get down to the heart of the matter. And I think for that, you do um, have to sort of take this challenge seriously.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. So I mean, you know, um, we we have this tendency to think about socialism as I mean, I don't want to be mean to people again, like But sometimes, uh, you know, it can become a type of identity politics within itself, right? That you want to you want to craft a really particular socialist persona online or whatever. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And uh, and that's, you know, fine, I guess. But like, that's not really what it's all. It's not really what it's all about, man. I I don't think that I'm going to get this episode without having more extremely worrying (laughs) flashbacks. Um, Okay, but. Uh, Yeah, so John Bellamy Foster, he kind of starts in on the conversation, just just asking like the big question. Right. So socialism, like you said, Dean, is not like a dirty word anymore. And people are getting excited about it. And they're interested in it, uh, you know, because of Occupy Wall Street or because of Bernie Sanders or because of, I don't know, (laughs) whatever else is kind of going on in the Mm -hmm. milieu of like North American popular politics. Uh, but he asks this question, if socialism is seemingly on the rise again in the context of the structural crisis of capital and increased class polarization, the question is this, what kind of socialism is it? In what ways does socialism for the 21st century differ from socialism of the 20th century? It's a fair question. Um, so, you know, like, what exactly is the socialism that we're doing now? He he, kind of goes on uh, in the essay a bit casting some aspersions at the um, socialism, uh, you know, as social democracy of like Bernie Sanders types of people or, or whatever. Um, he doesn't have a whole lot of uh, hope in that. And uh, I don't know. I don't want to be too pessimistic about anything. Bernie Sanders is fine for who he is. You know, the DSA is, is fine for what it is. Sometimes it's, you know, very good. Sometimes it's not. But anyways, um, JBF is, wants to go on and tell us that, you know, we can um, we can we should probably Pay more attention to um, Marx and Lenin, and, and especially read through the um, th- read, read through the perspective of like popular people's movements in, you know, the pink tide in Latin America and like Chavismo and these types of things, you know, we should um, instead of thinking about our our like North American politics through the realm of electoralism and like weird identity politics online, we should actually kind of like take a glance back at uh, at Marx and Lenin, but also at like what actual socialist movements in the 21st century are doing and like what they look like. And, uh, yeah, I think it's a good idea.
1: Yeah. Um, we should maybe, uh, pause to sort of lay that out a little more directly too, because, uh, all right. So on the one hand there's JBF has one opponent, which is, uh, sort of, let's say, let's call them the, the continental philosophy communists. Right. Um, and again, not to be too mean, I'm I'm one myself. <laughs> I'm a, a philosopher who thinks about communism. Uh, I do other things. I hope uh, that are meaningful with respect to communism, but that's certainly my my uh, <laughs> my professional life revolves around that exact conversation, right? So, uh, not to uh, be too self deprecating, but that's one uh, opponent that JBF has, reasonably so, that we can sort of get lost in. Uh, I don't know, figuring out the coolest Lacanian reading of capitalism or the best, uh, bizarre, perverse reading of Hegel, or whatever. Um, JBF is saying, uh, you know, we, we need to return to Marx and Lenin, um, not as, like, arbitrary authorities, but as people who still have a lot to sort of teach us on their own terms. Um, so that's one side. The other, as Matt was just saying, is uh, the opponent of Social Democrats or the, the kind of Jacobin or Bernie Sanders wing, which, again, not to be too mean, right? There's lots of good stuff happening there. Um, But the way that he sidesteps that is to point to projects that are already happening in the world, like in Venezuela or Bolivia, uh, and to say these are the kinds of lenses through which we'll go back and retrieve people like Marx and Lenin, both on the one hand to maybe like ground the, the abstract philosophy conversations that are happening on the one side and to provoke the kind of um maybe like u s chauvinist or u s centric uh tendencies that you can get on the other side, so anyway, that's the the horns of the dilemma that he's stepping through. hopefully that <laughs> helps situate it a little,
0: yeah, I think that's a pretty good way to put it um It's also just worth noting too that like the socialism in the twenty first century it's not departing, i think from like you know the the u s s r or Cuba or whatever. But it is like taking a look at some of like the legacy of those projects in light of, you know, current political projects, too. So um, mm-hmm. it, it's also, you know, returning to Lenin and returning to Marx, but like also not about like what exactly happened in all of the Soviets and like how it shook out for the USSR as sort of a definitive end of socialism either. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's looking at uh, it, it's it's uh, I mean, putting the, the locus of the conversation really in Latin America and in the global south. and I think that's a cool thing. Um,
1: mm-hmm.
0: cool and helpful thing. So let's let's get into it, yeah. I guess, a little bit. Let's get to Marx yeah. and Lenin through those sort of perspectives. Um. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, like if there is like a socialist ideal, if there's a, if there's, you know, <laughs> in Christianity, there's a really awful worship song called The Heart of Worship. And in that song, you're reminded that it's all about Jesus. That's the whole big deal about Christianity. But here, uh, the heart of socialism uh, for John Bellamy Foster is um, is understanding Marx and Lenin in this really particular way. So let's get back to the heart of socialism. It's all about you, Marx. It's all about you, Lenin. Let's do this. Um, (laughs) God, I played in a worship band when I was in (laughs) youth group, and I remember playing that song. I just hate it. Having (laughs) this this episode is full of extremely triggering moments for me. (laughs) Okay, we'll uh, we'll Um, debrief later.
1: Yeah, we'll have to.
0: (laughs) Uh, All right. So um, Marx and Lenin, they're important. So this is what uh, this is some of the stuff that uh, John Bellamy Foster wants to highlight from Marx. So he thinks that there are two phases um, of Marx's idea about socialism and idea about communism that we need to kind of like keep in mind um, with regard to. Yeah, I mean, like what we're organizing and building as people who are socialists and communists. Okay. So John Bowie Foster says this Marx designated two historical phases in the struggle to create a society of associated producers. The first phase was initiated by the revolutionary dictatorship of the proletariat, reflecting the class war experience of the Paris Commune and representing a period of workers democracy, but one that still carried the, quote, defects of capitalist class society. In this initial phase, not only would a break with capitalist private property take place, but also a break with the capitalist state as the political command structure of capitalism. All right. So in Marx, especially in the critique of the Gotha program, uh, not to mention, I mean, other places too, this kind of gets worked out. But critique of the Gotha program is uh, where JBF is pulling from right here. Um, there's there are these different phases to socialism, right? It's not just that you uh, you seize the means, you seize the state and you're, and you're there. Uh, But there's there's a little bit more to it. Um, But that is like the first sort of step, right, that you're you're going to start sort of seizing the political apparatuses and um, and transforming them into something else. But even though you're doing that, um, things are not perfect. Right. There's still all kinds of contradictions. The capitalists are still trying to find ways to fight back against you and and so on. Um, I don't know. Dean, is that good for the first stage or is there more that you want to say?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think one thing that I always find so helpful about this is, you know, when you when you get into arguments with like your uh, your uncle at Thanksgiving about communism or whatever, uh, the question is always like, well, uh, what about all this bad stuff that happens in other socialist or communist countries? And what I think is really useful about this point that Marx makes is that, well, from a Marxist perspective, you should kind of expect all that stuff to happen um not because communism is is bad or wants to be bad or something but because all the contradictions that are present in capitalism don't just kind of get like magically erased um mm-hmm. after the revolution you know you still have to deal with it and even if you're doing a good job marx says you're going to have a lot of those uh contradictions like i always think about in the critique of the gotha program um marx mentions for example in the the sort of first stage, you're going to have a lot of issues with uh, having labor tied to like wages. So, uh, you know, you go to work, maybe you don't get money back, but you get like labor vouchers or something. Um, But Mark says even this isn't sort of uh, the best situation, because what about people who can't work? And what about trying to take care of people who whose whose worth as human beings isn't tied to their labor, all that kind of stuff? So all that to say, um, what Marx does that I think is so good and so helpful to communists is to say, yeah, um, we're not fighting for uh, utopia tomorrow. We're fighting for utopia in like maybe a few generations at best, (laughs) if you're lucky. Right. All these contradictions are still going to be there.
0: I think that's right. Um, You know, like a revolutionary moment in this sense is like someone throwing the brakes on a car that's moving very fast. And uh, mm-hmm. the inertia is still going to carry you through the front of your windshield, and like mm-hmm. it's going to suck very bad. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I think that's a good way to put it, though, Dean. Like it's it, all these problems are still there, um, and uh, now you're just going to deal with them in like a different way. So you have to kind of sh- figure out how that's going to work. Um, so that's what Marx calls uh, the first phase. Or, I'm sorry. That's what Jeremy Bell. <sighs> That's what JBF calls the first stage. Um, I mean, it's Marx's first stage, too, but that's the taxonomy that JBF is kind of putting onto things here. Um, Okay, so then there's the second stage. This is the second part of Marx. That's also that, you know, should be the heart of the socialist ideal. Um, He says this in the later higher phase of the transition of socialism slash communism. Not only would property be collectively owned and controlled, but the constitutive cells of society would be reconstituted on a communal basis and production would be in the hands of the associated producers. In these conditions, Marx stated, labor will have become not a mere means of life, but itself the prime necessity of life. Production would be directed at use values rather than exchange values in line with a society in which the free development of each would be the condition for the free development of all. So you move from this like uh, sort of tumultuous and, uh, you know, uh, situation riddled with contradictions toward the resolution of those contradictions in communism, where uh, people are socialized differently. The whole idea of labor is kind of flipped on its, you know, flipped and it's different. Um, you know, the the society is is geared toward the um, the free development of each by the condition of the free development of all, which is a great uh, a great turn of phrase, I think. Um, mm-hmm. So there you go. You get these stages of, of moving from socialism to this like, you know, uh, kind of tumultuous thing toward the resolution of that conflict. And uh yeah, it sounds pretty good. The these phases, I don't know. I mean, I for, I think they're like a helpful taxonomy. Um elsewhere Marx kind of frames these not as individual sort of like moments, but you know, one continue the continuation of one big struggle. Yeah, yeah. Um and the German ideology Marx talks about this struggle as like this, this is what communism is itself. It's the abolition of things, you know. Um but, uh, you know, fine. You want to put in a taxonomy? That's let's do it. Let's put it in phases. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> I'm up for it.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, Lenin in the Satan Revolution, which we can talk about in a minute, uh, complains about um, making too harsh a distinction, but sort of admits that, OK, well, maybe it's heuristically useful or yeah, contextually useful to do it, Um you know he he like <laughs> admits that okay fine if you have to talk about it like this then this is how we'll talk about it uh, which is okay I think right it's okay to um, break these things down as long as we understand that um, they're more complicated on the ground uh, one thing that I always comes to mind when we talk about the two stage thing here is actually uh, something we talked about a long time ago. In Fidel and Religion, um, which, for those who don't know, it's a book where Fidel Castro talks with a Dominican priest, Frey Beto, about religion. And in it, there's this great moment where uh, they're talking about the revolutionary character of Christianity. And Castro says Christianity is actually more revolutionary than the Cuban Revolution because in Cuba, they are still trying to operate on the principle that. Uh, whoever works, um, the uh, they're allowed to. Um, how does he put it? Like you know, the 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 formula of communism is um, from each according to their ability to each according to their need. Uh, Kester says in Cuba they they've got the from each according to ability piece, but they don't yet have the to each according to their need piece. And he says that's the sort of uh, Christian revolution because that phrase derives from uh, the the Bible and. To me, that's always like a, a great salutary moment for like how Christians could kind of engage this sort of theory of socialism. Is to say that's the place that we're going toward, uh, but not necessarily the place that we're at right now.
0: Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, that's cool.
1: I kind of forgot about that part, and Phil really just crazy brain. I'm, and I'm, I'm happy about <laughs> it. <laughs> um, so uh, just adding a little bit from Lenin here. J.B.F. says, uh, writing in the state and revolution and elsewhere, Lenin deftly captured Marx's arguments on the lower and higher phases, depicting these as the first and second phases of communism. So that's the, the unity is communism. Lenin went on to emphasize what he called the scientific distinction between socialism and communism, whereby what is usually called socialism was termed by Marx, the first or lower phase of communist society. Whereas the term communism, meaning complete communism, was most appropriately used for the higher phase. So, again, just kind of emphasizing that this is a, an analytical distinction, but like you were just saying, Matt, it's part of a, a, a continuous um, struggle toward communism.
0: Yeah, it's good. <laughs> I think it's good. I mean, either way you want to break it down, it's fine. Um I think this is like, you know, OK, so Lenin's, I mean, taxonomizing it in this way or like, you know, making it a heuristic is fine. Um, I think the the mistake, though, is to be very rigid about these heuristics because, um, yeah, you know, like nowhere does do things work out so neatly. <laughs> you can think about the I mean, the Russian Revolution, it, you know, it's very messy. And even like in reflecting on the Russian Revolution, a ton of Marxist theorists like Gramsci were like, well, it didn't happen in the usual way it didn't happen in like the marxist way of like you know first you have capitalism now you have this like other higher stage of socialist struggle you know it didn't work out exactly in that format (laughs) right or even Mm -hmm. if you think about um like the zapatistas or something like that right it doesn't work out exactly in this way it's like it's completely sort of along these other you know it's some of these lines work out and some of these ideas can kind of be fit in but in other ways uh it's just a lot messier on the ground and i think embracing that uh that struggle doesn't always come in these neat phases is great. It is a good idea Um, Mm -hmm. when we're kind of thinking about the the ways that I mean, not not only do like movements kind of present themselves historically, but how how like we're working within movements right now, you know, that might be building, um, you know, institutions that might be good for social struggle or or whatever. Um, Just all complicated is I'm trying to say.
1: yeah i think that's right it's important to emphasize that because again you can get sort of bogged down when you argue with your uncle at thanksgiving about uh you know purity narratives right that uh, every social society has to sort of do everything right all the time or it's sort of nothing um Mm -hmm. and you know it's not not to excuse all the very bad things that do happen in social societies but just to say that uh These are also things that Marxists sort of expect, you know, Um, one one good thing about Marxism is that it is not a story that's like really neat and tidy. Um, It doesn't tell you that, uh, you know, um, as soon as our side wins, everything's going to be fine. Right. Because that is the story that you often hear from capitalists, for instance. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Marxism is like, well, it's just going to stay complicated, but maybe a little bit differently. (laughs) So uh, you can admit that and not worry about it.
0: Right. It's just like, yeah, you know, the thing about socialism is it's just uh, picking up and acquiring more expansive tools along with the struggle to wage the struggle even further. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that's right. It, um, hmm. <laughs> you know, it'd be nice if it was is as utopian as everyone wants to make it out to be. You know, it'd be nice if you just had to you just had to do the socialist things. And then socialism is, is here and it's like good and easy, but it's not ever. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, the history of. Every example of any of any socialist projects is there to tell you that, right? Like you're going to do something cool and and like, you know, um, seize an institution or seize a part of the state or whatever. And then there's going to be, you know, massive repression and like, um, you know, either from the local state or from like the global community or, or whatever. People don't like it when you when the workers in some way are empowered to, uh, you know, dictate the way their life works.
1: Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, um, with all this complication in mind, uh, again, the the best part about this article is that it doesn't sort of leave us in the the speculations of theory uh, necessarily, or kind of get us stuck in like figuring out the right analytic formula. But it's asking questions about what does it mean to think about all this stuff in the present moment in the twenty first century. And JBF says, I think quite rightly. The only way to build socialism in the 21st century is to embrace precisely those aspects of the socialist or communist ideal that allow a theory and practice radical enough to address the urgent needs of the present, while also not losing sight of the needs of the future. If the planetary ecological crisis has taught us anything, it is that what is required is a new social metabolism with the earth, a society of ecological sustainability and substantive equality. Uh, What I think is really important here is that, um, first of all, we're trying to sort of track the continuities, but also the discontinuities between the previous century and this one. Um, But secondly, with an eye toward not just like looking toward the past all the time, looking toward whatever happened in the Soviet Union or what's happening in, I don't know, other revolutionary situations. But specifically thinking, what does it mean to think about socialism or communism in light of the crises that we know are, you know, not far on the horizon or, in fact, already present. Right. With wildfires all over whatever the Western uh, part of North America or, uh, you know, all kinds of people who are already displaced as climate refugees in some of the poorest parts of the world. Uh, those are sort of the the testaments to the future questions that socialism is going to have to address, and also the the sort of uh, reminder that this is um, an immediate need that we need to address, you know, as quickly as possible. And I think raising the stakes in that way is a, a better way of formulating socialism and communism that gets you out of like both the the speculative trap of just like philosophizing about it all the time. But also the the sort of trap of history of being like, I have to figure out exactly what I think about everything with respect to the Soviet Union, or I can't like move forward.
0: Right. I mean, it pushes you to kind of like invest and in kind of learn and know about like contemporary struggles, too. Right. Like, mm-hmm. you, you know, you, you can learn a little bit about the Soviet Union and, and realize that like uh, industrialized. Agriculture is probably not going to get, not going to strike that right social metabolism with the earth, right? Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, right. the productivism of like factory farming isn't good for anybody. <laughs> um, and, you know, and, and realizing that, and then like turning to look at like what socialist projects have kind of done in response, right? You see some different things emerge, like agroecology in Cuba or agroecology with the MST in Brazil. These types of examples are, are ways that socialists have, like, uh you know, they've adapted what socialism might mean for the 21st century, right? Like, what does it look like to start, like, seizing the means of production in the sense of, like, you know, uh holding, a, 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 getting a constitutional amendment to be able to, like, you know, use land that's not being used, right? That's a that's a good um a good movement of that first stage of socialism but it doesn't look exactly like uh you know the seizing of the state apparatus in in 1917 or whatever right it's a different sort of look and um but but still like very important mhm
1: mhm yeah i think that's right um the the question of what does it look like is a really difficult one obviously and one that nobody can answer in a speculative way, but one that we can sort of think about with respect to how it looks. And I mean, Matt, you're already pulling us in that direction by thinking about the MSC or, or Cuba, we could think about places like Venezuela. Um, I think this is what is so compelling to me about the work of Marta Harnaker, for instance, that we talked about just recently on the show, is that she's constantly pulling from demonstrable places in the world, right? It's not just speculation or just theory or logic. It's like, well, here's how it's actually happening in Ecuador or somewhere else. And JBF is also very sensitive to that. I mean, he worked closely with Marta Harnacker, all that kind of stuff. Um, And he has two sort of things here that I think are useful to think about with respect to how socialism, how we might think about it now. So he says, to be successful, a revolution must seek to make itself irreversible through the promotion of an organic system directed at genuine human needs. Rooted in substantive equality and the rational regulation of the human social metabolism with nature. So that's one piece. We'll come back to it in a minute. The second is he says Marx's conception of communism demands a change in the constituted cells of society, which can no longer consist of possessive individuals or individual capitals reinforced by a hierarchical state, but must be based on the associated producers and the communal state. Genuine planning and genuine democracy can only start through the constitution of power from the bottom of society. It's only in this way that revolutions become irreversible. Uh, this is the question of the reversibility and irreversibility of communism is always the big Marxist Leninist question, right? It's the thing that makes Marxist Leninists uh, crabby about social democrats because um, it's really easy to undo social democratic reforms if you get a bad right wing leader in power um that's sort of the the lesson in neoliberalism and the marxist leninist retort is always well if you had a big worker state you wouldn't be able to do that when you know i think that is probably right <laughs> <laughs> but uh nevertheless this question of exactly how to achieve that kind of state is is one that uh nobody has fully solved and i think that the sort of uh I don't know if you'd call it like the monthly review school of thought on this, but anyway, JBF's and Marta Honecker's thought is to suggest that the best way to achieve your reversibility is to sort of throw in with the bottom. Um, not as a sort of like um, crass populism or like a, a sort of uh, a cult of personality from below or something like that, but rather through building real authentic, authentic like participatory power structures. And that, to me, I think is very compelling for how socialism might look in the 21st century.
0: Yeah, I think so, too. Um, I think that's a good way of putting it. I mean, we can talk more about the the people's movements in a second, but I guess I want to point out like another place where the struggle might be happening that we just don't really realize yet. Um, and. I'm open to criticism if you think I'm wrong, Dean, but <laughs> whatever, um, you know, a lot of these like movements like, uh, OK, like the one I just mentioned, the MST in Brazil. Right. Like the the reason that they are able to just like take up land that is no longer being used is because they were able to like amend the constitution of Brazil. That's right. kind of how it worked out. And I think like that, that part um, about, you know, the uh, amending the sort of state apparatus to work just a little bit in your favor is really fascinating Um, You know, it's obviously not winning the whole thing, but I think like those are the types of movements that I I think that Marta Harnacker and, you know, and JBF probably are thinking of, too. Right. Like, um, you know, how do you see like how do you see is like some of the state apparatus or how do you create institutions that, you know, can start intervening in the state apparatus in different ways? And I'm always thinking of the ways that like this is actually kind of possible in the United States, but it is very hard and fraught with all kinds of other problems. But like, um, you know, OK, Changing the federal constitution, like the big, the big constitution of the United States, very difficult, not going to happen. It's going to be very hard. Mm-hmm. But uh, state constitutions can be amended in a whole bunch of different places. Not every state can do this, but like Missouri and Florida and I think Illinois and, and maybe Michigan, too. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong on the on all these states. But you can you can change these um, you can change these const- the constitutions of the states with like pretty easy democratic means right just voting in an election but it's weird how like that type of electoralism is like dominated by the democratic party and not popular people's movements not like not like you know even the dsa i mean i'm sure they'll throw in with whatever but um it's just weird that like that is a a place where electoralism could be extremely useful but it's just kind of like not
1: (laughs) yeah well it's like um you know, I I think a lot about whenever you think about people's movements or the power of uh, grassroots democracy in a place like the US, uh, in recent memory, Black Lives Matter is the the one movement that obviously has had more um, sway than anything else. And in some respects, they do make really strong gains. But I think uh, they also have some cautionary lessons for how difficult it really is. Like, you know, I always think about the the Minneapolis um, City Council proposal to defund the police that came in the wake of George Floyd's uh, murder. Like, um, it, it was a, an amazing thing that the city council was even willing to use that kind of language that they were going to defund and potentially even abolish the Minneapolis Police Department. Um, but as people might know, I mean, there's, there's all kinds of incredibly frustrating and fraught uh, history involved in that just in the last several months. And surprise, that is not going to (laughs) happen. They're not going to disband the Minneapolis Police Department, Um, which is all to say like people's movements are the kinds of things that actually can get people to start talking about incredibly imaginative and wild policy proposals. Mm -hmm. But they're also the kinds of things that like if you don't have them built into real organizational structures that last for a very long time, like the MST, Um, you have a hard time sort of exercising that will, which is not a, not a knock on Black Lives Matter. There's lots of people who are doing exactly that work there. Um, but just to say that, like, if you wanted to proliferate people's movements, um, you would have to do quite a lot of work to build sort of, uh, the apparatus you would need to maintain those a lot longer. I mean, that's, that's the argument, I think, at the end of the day for something like a communist party, which I think is pretty compelling, Um, but in any case, it's a a big challenge in a place like the U S or a place like Canada.
0: Right. I mean, absolutely. Right. If you're going to change anything, um, at the like structural level like that, you need to be very well organized. I mean, at least as well organized as the Democrats or Republicans are, Yeah. which I know seems like an easy, an easy thing, but actually it's very hard.
1: Yeah. Well, they're so instantiated in the state in incredibly privileged ways that it's hard to break through that. Yeah. Um, yeah uh in any case i think it's true that you have to sort of play through this dialectic at least of uh grassroots or, or bottom-up movements and trying to see state power um you know one thing that communists often talk about when they look at a place like venezuela is uh you know everybody's supportive of chavez great stuff and and maduro etc and the the psuv have done some pretty amazing things no doubt and they've resisted imperialism so lots of celebratory notes um, and if you're, you know, if you're a communist in outside of Venezuela, you should definitely be <laughs> opposing imperialist intervention no matter what you think about that country. Uh, but what I think is really fascinating is even for communists who are maybe like they have certain reservations about the process in Venezuela, uh, the good news is there's all kinds of communists in Venezuela who are working very hard at figuring out what their relationship <laughs> to that country is. Um And they, too, have tried to sort this out, right? Like, uh, they enter into lots of coalitions with the PSUV, but on their own terms. And sometimes they're sort of closer and sometimes they're further away. But I think the whole point is that even the Communist Party of Venezuela understands that, uh, you know, you have to negotiate these kinds of things. Like, yeah, at the end of the day, you want to end capitalist class rule, which is not what, like, Maduro is going to do in his lifetime, for sure but uh, you have to sort of figure out how to work with the the conditions that you're in. Um, and the way that JBF sets this up, I think is at least something that is both simple and complex enough to give you something to do, right? <laughs> like build the stuff on the bottom and try your best to uh, get leverage from the top. Um, it's, uh, it's a lot harder than that, but that's kind of a good way to start.
0: Yeah, I think so. Um, man, there's just like... <laughs> On the one hand it feels like there's so much work to be done, but on the other hand it feels like people are starting to do it. So that's very good. Yeah. Um yeah, I don't know. Just get get involved in something. Start from the bottom, work <laughs> your way up. There.
1: It's so easy. Just do just do that thing I just said. <laughs> well, I think um that also gives us an opportunity to talk more about the the classic Marxist issue of the proletariat. That's the energy that Karl Marx thinks is going to bring about the world revolution. Um, you know, the working class it's the people who who labor and have the ability to withhold their labor. That's the sort of choke point of capitalism's power. Uh, and that's true, I think, in a really unique way. But uh, John Bellamy Foster goes on to sort of add on to that or complexified in a way that's also instructive. And I think gives us a little more uh, legroom to talk about how Christians might um, kind of come close to this, too. So he says, revolutionary situations are thus most likely to come about when a combination of economic and ecological conditions makes social transformations necessary and where social forces and relations are developed enough to make such changes possible. In this respect, looked at from a global standpoint today, the issue of the environmental proletariat overlaps with and is indistinguishable from the question of the ecological peasantry and the struggles of the indigenous. Likewise, the struggle for environmental justice that now animates the environmental movement globally is, in essence, a working class and people struggle. Uh, so lots of words there, but here's what I think is the, the sort of summarizing idea. Um, JBF notes that, uh, the proletariat is the, the key here, but it's also relative to people who are uniquely threatened by things like climate change, um, that's where people are forced to to act, you know, to move or to resist in some way or another. And that's where you're going to find a lot of uh, important energy. And because those people may or may not identify with the proletariat, um, either willingly or because they are not members of it because there's something else, they're peasants or whatever, uh, that means that the proletariat is going to have to be an environmental proletariat, which is to say it has to sort of build links with people outside of it with other kinds of people's movements, advocating for other kinds of interests. And I think that actually is a really profound idea for rethinking Marxism in the 21st century.
0: Yeah, I agree, right? You're not going to just be able to, you know, kickstart the, the Communist Party again. You're going to have to, you know, do that, but also build a, a massive coalition with a lot of other people who have similar interests to you. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, I don't know. You're just going to be spinning your wheels with like 10 people. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean, that's really the key, right? Is trying to think through uh, how to link these things up, the proletariat and other people's movements. Um, John Bellamy Foster ends this article with a pretty... Um, I don't know what adjective to use. It's interesting. I'll use that neutral adjective. <laughs> a very interesting proposal for a new international, which is what socialists and communists are always proposing over and over and over again. Uh, I will say that JBS proposal is actually probably one of the more promising ones I've ever read. Um you know, trying to build some he roots it in kind of like relationships between the global South and he roots it in theorists like uh, Hugo Chavez and Samira Amin. So you know, it's more interesting than than the usual affair. But uh, let's skip that bit. The most important thing is trying to think through that relationship between uh, the workers and, and popular movements, which uh, JVF thinks is really, you know, epitomized in the global South. Um, What this made me think of uh, pretty regular or pretty readily, sorry, is uh, Pope Francis's thoughts throughout his papacy about popular movements. Um, We've talked about this in the past a long time ago. I forget even what episode, but uh, Pope Francis has this real um, interest in popular movements. Uh, I want to read one little bit from a 2015 address that he made to a world meeting of popular movements, and we can maybe talk through how that relates to a bit of what JBF is talking about So Pope Francis says, Working for a just distribution of the fruits of the earth in human labor is not mere philanthropy. It is a moral obligation. For Christians, the responsibility is even greater. It is a commandment. It is about giving to the poor and to peoples what is theirs by right. The universal destination of goods is not a figure of speech found in the church's social teaching. It's a reality prior to private property. Property, especially when it affects natural resources, must always serve the needs of the people and those needs are not restricted to consumption. It's not enough to let a few drops fall whenever the poor shake a cup, which never runs over by itself. Welfare programs geared to certain emergencies can only be considered temporary and incidental responses that can never replace true inclusion, an inclusion which provides worthy, free, creative, participatory, and solidary work. Along this path, popular movements play an essential role not only by making demands and launching protests, but even more basically by being creative. You are social poets, creators of work, builders of housing, producers of food, above all for people left behind by the world market. Uh, How you could ever read this and come away capitalist is not clear to me, (laughs) but uh, I think it really sort of provides a a sort of Christian entry point into exactly what JBF is saying, that uh, we need to find a way to build real links between the working class and popular movements but those links are kind of present already, right? Like uh, these are, are natural links built by people who experience themselves as both social poets in Pope Francis's words and maybe experience themselves as being on the wrong side of the market. And uh, I think it's important to sort of pay attention to when Pope Francis is saying that because he does give us a, a way in, I guess, as socialists trying to think through uh, how to demand something beyond just uh, the renewed welfare state or something like that?
0: Yeah, actually, I really appreciate that. Um, you, you know, like throwing that in there, right? It's not just that you uh, can't get you can't get to, can't get to um, a good Christian response through philanthropy, and you can't get there through welfare programs either. It has to be like a rethinking of the market altogether. It has to be a way of rethinking like the way that resources are kind of dealt with. Um, I think that's a pretty, (laughs) pretty powerful, uh, framing for, um, you know, the, the way that we think of people's movements and like what political goals even are, um, Mm -hmm. it's ambitious, but like exactly right.
1: Yeah. And again, like, uh, tying that into the ecological piece is really Mm -hmm. necessary. Um, maybe with a sort of forward thinking, um, We could also turn to a more recent letter that Pope Francis wrote to popular movements just this year in light of the pandemic. Um, He says, in these days of great anxiety and hardship, many have used warlike metaphors to refer to the pandemic we are experiencing. If the struggle against COVID-19 is a war, then you are truly an invisible army fighting in the most dangerous trenches. An army whose only weapons are solidarity, hope, and community spirit, all revitalizing at a time when no one can save themselves alone. As, you, as I told you in our meetings, to me, you are social poets because from the forgotten peripheries where you live, you create admirable solutions for the most pressing problems afflicting the marginalized. Um, you know, Pope Francis has problems, whatever, but I do think that this is exactly right. Like to cast a vision for even dealing with our contemporary crisis, uh, that means we need to invent really new ways of being in solidarity and also new ways of imagining uh life together after the pandemic through the that solidarity now um i think again just kind of brings together all these concerns that jbf is bringing together too right economy ecology and epidemiology the three b's <laughs> of uh 21st century socialism
0: yeah um i think there's a, a you know what pope francis because is here too at the end um adds another i don't know vertice or whatever i don't know
1: <laughs> to some of
0: the to some of what we were talking about earlier too you know about the sort of philosophical approach to the socialism or whatever because you know when you're when you're like a singular grad student or internet savant or whatever and you're reading all this <laughs> stuff it like this part doesn't really matter to you or it it doesn't it doesn't necessarily right the the part that Reading theory is cool, right? You're you're getting it and you're understanding it and you're kind of being becoming a critic yourself And that's really great But like I think unless you're actually in struggle alongside of the people you don't you know None of this kind of comes through right you can be you can be an internet communist and and never kind of understand that you Have to be in solidarity with other people or what even that you know what that even looks like in practice Um, So Pope Francis kind of offers us this that like this is what it really means um, To stand with other people and, uh, you know, you gotta do more than just, you gotta just, you gotta do more than just read theory. You gotta, you gotta do it.
1: Yeah, no, I, I think that's exactly right. Um, you know, whatever, like, uh, read your way into communism. We all get there our own way. Uh, very few of us these days get there by attending a union meeting and meeting some secret communists and then joining the party in a clandestine upper room, uh, with a bunch <laughs> of other comrades, right? That's, we're, we don't live in the great depression anymore. Uh, that's not how things are going. Um, So however you get there is fine. I I try not to disparage people for getting there the way that they do. And I got there through theory myself. Um, But it is like a profoundly different thing to turn your coordinates away from having the most important interpretation of Hegel or even like a, a text from Marx read through some wild, I don't know, contemporary philosopher to turn your framework from that into, well, I'm trying to pay attention to what's going on on the ground. And like, you know, these real kind of people's movements that are all around me that I'm maybe connecting up with or or trying to uh, observe and, and sort of take stock of um, that really changes the way that you think about socialism in general. And it is telling that both uh, JBF and Pope Francis are sort of calling our attention there. Um, there is a real sort of confluence, I think, between um, what Christianity demands of us in the 21st century and what socialism demands of us, too.
0: Yeah, I think that's good. So um, maybe in the end, Uh, of all this, we can pull out some of the big, the big picture ideas that we learned in this episode. Um, (laughs) So, okay. Uh, Socialism. uh, Oh, boy, people have a lot to say about these days. But really, when it comes down to it, it's about transitioning away from capitalism and towards socialism. Doesn't mean that it's going to be, you know, a utopia tomorrow. But it means that, uh, you know, we're going to pick up different types of uh, tools by seizing them through, you know, building power and so on, and we're going to continue that struggle. It also means that, you know, it doesn't <laughs> it's not going to look exactly like the, you know, the the Russian Revolution. It's not going to look like the Cuban Revolution. It's not going to look like the Zapatistas, it, you know, it's going to look like whatever it looks like in the given moment, because that's the way that our material conditions work. So just be you know paying attention to those struggles and I guess figuring them out. Uh, OK, I've ran out of things. Dean, what else did we learn? <laughs>
1: yeah I think that's exactly right. Um, we've also talked a bit about how uh, the the nature of struggle in the twenty first century by virtue of that means that the the coordinates for paying attention will be different too right the The old Marxist category of the proletariat is still very meaningful, but it has to be expanded into an environmental proletariat. I think JBF is exactly right to point us in that direction, and that naturally leads us to thinking more about people's movements, popular movements.
0: Okay, that's it. Those are the things we've learned. You can't listen to this podcast and say that you haven't learned anything because there (laughs) it all is. We've laid it out here before you.
1: That's the the Big Tent Socialist Revival. Um, Man, probably not quite as exciting as Billy Graham, unfortunately, I have to say. Uh, But um, I do ask that wherever you are listening to this podcast, um, unless you're in a car, very important to add that parentheses, uh, just uh, close your eyes, um, raise your hands, and um, if you feel so led, you know, come down to the altar, recommit your life to socialism, and uh, figure out what that means in your life with your personal walk with uh, Marx and Lenin this week. And uh, check in with us next week. Let us know how it's going, and invite your friends back to this uh, this big red tent.
0: Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Magnificast. Uh, right now, if you uh, support us at the ten or eleven dollar level, you can get a very cool Camilla Torres uh, sticker that Ryan Kagel made. It's a one of a kind, only on our Patreon. Um, probably once over, you could buy it, but listen, right now it's only on our Patreon. Um, <laughs> let's see. Um, I don't know. That's it. The uh, the music, uh, the <laughs> intro music is by Mario Armstrong. The outro music is by the Logical Spoon. And uh, come on back to the heart of socialism uh, next week.
1: Keep your hoods up, and you stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind it cold nights, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still.